0: When was the last time that you really had to wait for something? I don't mean like, I don't mean waiting in line at the store or waiting on hold with Comcast customer service. That's, you know, that's a different kind of trial than we're talking about this morning. I'm talking about the kind of waiting that doesn't have any clear end in sight. Waiting for something that you desire deeply with no certainty that you will ever obtain it. Waiting for a new job or a promotion. Waiting for a difficult marriage or a difficult relationship to improve. Waiting to find a spouse. Waiting for a friend or loved one to come into a relationship with Jesus, to meet Jesus. Waiting for the results of a medical test or a clean bill of health. Waiting to get pregnant. Waiting for the darkness of depression to lift. The passage we're looking at this morning is about this kind of waiting. It's a waiting that aches with longing at the deepest parts of our soul. It's a, it's a waiting that gnaws at our minds as we lie awake at night. It's a waiting that calls into question some of our most deeply held beliefs and convictions. And it's a kind of waiting that I believe God uses in the life of every single believer, everyone who would come and follow him to some extent or another. I've called this message in the waiting room with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I really believe that you desire to do something this morning. I believe that every time we gather together that your spirit is active. I believe that every time your word is proclaimed it is living and active and it doesn't return void. So Lord I pray that you would accomplish in us Everything that you intend this morning, I pray that you would help me by your spirit to clearly articulate the truth that we find here in your word. I pray that you would remove by your spirit distractions that might draw us away from receiving from your your word, taking root and implanting in our hearts and bearing fruit. And I pray that you would do all this for our good and for the glory of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. The principle of waiting in the Bible is, and, and I'll be more specific here, what the Bible describes, I think, as waiting on the Lord. The experience of waiting on the Lord is something that is so common and so ubiquitous and so frequently mentioned and experienced by almost everyone in Scripture that it's kind of hiding in plain sight. We don't talk about it a lot, but when you start looking for it, you see it everywhere. There are more than 30 references in the Psalms alone to the idea of waiting on the Lord, or to the question that we see here, questions like the one we see here in verse 84. How long? Abraham waited 25 years from when God first promised him a child in Genesis chapter 12 to when Isaac was born. Joseph was in slavery and in jail for 13 years before he was brought into the court of Pharaoh. Moses, exiled 40 years before he met God at the burning bush, And then wandered in the wilderness for another 40 years, ultimately to never enter into the promised land. David waited 15 years from the time that he was first anointed king to when he actually was appointed king. Simeon, you remember him from Luke chapter 2. The scriptures say that... He had waited his entire life, he had spent his entire life waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna, the prophetess, in the same passage, spent probably 60 years or more as a widow coming to the temple daily, fasting and praying, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And the list goes on when we look across the whole history of God's redemptive plan and we look at the people who have walked with God by faith, we can't escape the reality that the experience of waiting is a fundamental part of what it means to live in the shadowlands of this fallen world. Hebrews 11, the famous chapter on faith, starts with with this well-known verse. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We might say more accurately, it's the conviction of things not yet seen. And in the space of hoping for things that we haven't yet fully received and believing things that we haven't yet fully seen, we have the experience of waiting So it's important if we are going to be mature in our thinking as Christians that we understand what God is up to when he brings us into a season of waiting on him. Now before we get into the text, I do want to be clear about what I <clears throat> mean when I talk about waiting. I'm not, you don't have to be a Christian to, to experience waiting, to experience longing to experience groaning for something that you deeply desire but can't obtain. In fact, more than a few people, I think, have been brought into the kingdom precisely by means of this kind of longing and groaning in their souls that they found could only be satisfied in Jesus. Augustine. Martin Luther, John Newton, C.S. Lewis, and undoubtedly countless others have been brought to Christ precisely because of a longing in their souls that they found could only be satisfied in Jesus. What the Bible describes, though, as waiting on the Lord, I think, is something different, at least in part, than this kind of general longing. When the Bible talks about waiting... What I'm talking about here is the particular experience of the people of God throughout Scripture and history who, by divine providence, have been brought into an extended season of pain, trial, dryness, and darkness where they are waiting for a relief that God alone can provide. That's what I'm talking about here ...when we talk about waiting. And this is the situation that the author of this psalm finds himself in. There are four things that I think we can learn from this passage... ...about what it means to wait on the Lord. First, the pain of waiting. Second, the process of waiting. Third, the purpose of waiting. And finally, the promise of waiting. The pain of waiting, the process of waiting... The purpose of waiting, the promise of waiting. Let's look first at the pain of waiting. This text, we'll come back to it. I'll I'll show you some examples. It's dripping with a sense of aching pain. Verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. 82, my eyes long for your promise. When will you comfort me? I become like a wineskin in the smoke. We'll come back to that. Verse 83. How long must your servant endure? This is the desperate cry of someone who feels like they're at the end of their rope. They have nothing left to give. I did some reading on this, on the image of a wineskin in the smoke. I think it's a very vivid image, but I don't quite understand what it means. Most commentators seem to agree that it's intended to communicate something that's dried, shriveled, blackened, brittle, of no earthly use. A new wineskin was soft, flexible, pliable. But the idea here is after the wine is gone, the wineskin doesn't have any more use It gets hung up someplace in the cooking area of a tent or a house where the fire is. And over time, the heat and the smoke from the fire just drain it, dry it out, suck out the life. The psalmist here is hurting. And it's not just the pain of a bad day, the car breaking down, the kids out of control. It's not even the... It's not even the pain of an urgent crisis, like my enemies are right at the door, and if something doesn't change right now, I'm done for. All of those situations and circumstances have their own pain, and they come with their own challenges and trials. And please don't hear me trying to to minimize the the pain or the, the challenge of any trial that you might be going for, going through but I do believe that there is a unique kind of pain that comes from a trial that has no end in sight. A trial that leaves you feeling empty and dry, weak and worn out. And apart from a miraculous intervention, there is no indication that this situation is going to change anytime soon. We see this over and over again throughout the Bible. When God brings his people into seasons of waiting on him, of prolonged trial, it almost seems from a, uh, where it seems like from a human perspective, there's just no, no end in sight. There's, there's no hope. Joseph, he gets sold into slavery, and that's bad. I mean, that's a bad day when that happens. But it seems like things are looking up, and then he gets accused and thrown in jail and probably spends most of those 13 years sitting in a jail cell. Job, obviously very famous example of waiting on the Lord, has a really bad day. Loses all of his livestock, all of his servants, his children, his health. But then his relationships start to untangle and he spends a long time just sitting in it. No hope in sight. The first thing I think we can learn from this passage is that it's okay to be real about how we're hurting. Trusting in God doesn't mean that we don't experience real pain, that we don't wrestle and sometimes fail to see where God might be at work in our circumstances. It doesn't mean that we don't ask questions like, how long, O Lord? How long are you going to keep me here in this prolonged and painful trial? When are you going to provide some comfort and relief? And part of suffering in community and being a community that cares well for those who are suffering... Is on the one hand learning to be real about how we're struggling. And on the other hand, to not, to learn how to listen and sit with people in their pain without just offering, trying to offer solutions. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for encouragement. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for pointing each other to the hope that we have in Christ. We'll get to that in a minute. There certainly is. But let's be careful that we don't do that in a way that kind of shuts off the conversation about how people are struggling because it's uncomfortable for us. Rather than drawing people out to understand how they're hurting, How they're struggling, so that we can actually come alongside and and really bear one another's burdens. It's not an easy thing to do. Some of you do it really well. And it's a privilege to be a part of a church where we've experienced that kind of care. If you have doubts, ask questions more than offer solutions, listen more than speak. Pray more than preach. The psalmist here isn't afraid to articulate the the struggles and the pain that he's experiencing, and we shouldn't be afraid of that either. But there's one more layer of pain that I think we see here that is unique to the experience of waiting on the Lord. It's more than just the pain of a difficult circumstance. It's the reality that God is both the source and the solution to this situation that I'm experiencing. In fact, I would say this is what distinguishes the general experience of suffering and longing that people experience all around the world every day from the unique experience of those who have come into a relationship with God by faith. It is the conviction that the God of the Bible is sovereignly ruling over all of the circumstances of my life. He has sovereignly brought me into this season of trial and he alone can bring me out of it. And we see So we see several times over this passage, the psalmist describes actions that are being perpetrated against him by other people. So verse 85, the insolent have dug pits for me. Verse 86, they persecute me with falsehood. Help me. Verse 87, they've almost made an end of me on the earth. But each time, did you notice this, he turns back to God Recognizing that he's the one who's ultimately in control and the fact that he's still in this difficult circumstance is because God has so far chosen not to change it. When will you comfort me, God? Verse 82. When will you save me, God? Verse 84. When will you judge those who persecute me? God, I see, you see the circumstances that I'm in. I know that you do. And I know that this world is broken. I know that there's an enemy who's trying to destroy me. But ultimately, I know that I'm in this painful circumstance because you've chosen to place me here. And I don't know how long you intend to keep me here. That can be a painful place to be. When we start scanning the promises of scripture and wondering if they're really true. What does it what does it really mean when Psalm 34 says that those who lack the Lord seek no good thing? Or that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He doesn't feel near right now. Or that the Lord delivers the righteous from all their afflictions. It's not been my experience right now. What does Psalm 103 mean when it says, the Lord heals all your diseases and he satisfies you with good? What does Romans 8.28 really mean when it says God is working all things together for good? I'm having a hard time seeing that right now. Are these promises really true? Do they really apply to me? Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe I'm being punished for something. Or have I just misunderstood what these promises actually mean? Have I subtly come to believe that the good that God promises is something like a comfortable life, a fulfilling career, a healthy family, a happy marriage, you fill in the blank. Have I actually deep down been thinking of God more like a genie or an insurance policy than the pearl of greatest price? And if I never get the answers that I'm looking for, if I never experience and receive the good gifts that I desire so deeply, will God himself be enough to truly satisfy? These can be painful questions to wrestle with. And I believe that one of the distinguishing features of the experience that we see here of waiting on the Lord is that it. Forces us to to wrestle with these kinds of questions. But just as a muscle is torn and broken down through the process of exercise so that it can grow stronger, there are a few things, I think, that tear the fibers of our faith more deeply than the pain of waiting on the Lord. But it is a pain with purpose. And it's pain with a promise. We'll get there in a second, but let's look first at the process of waiting. If you were listening closely when I first read the passage, you may have noticed a kind of distinct sequence or rhythm to the the phrasing of the text. I'm going to read it again and see if you catch it. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. When will you comfort me? I've become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I haven't forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pits for me. They don't live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They, They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They've almost made an end of me on the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. There's kind of a ping pong like rhythm to the passage. I'm hurting. I'm running to God for comfort. I'm anxious. I'm running to God for, I'm turning to God for comfort. And trusting his promises. I feel weak. I'm turning to God and running to him for strength. I'm in danger. I'm asking God for help. We've already seen here that the the psalmist isn't afraid to be honest about how he's hurting and how he's struggling, but each time it seems his pain, his fear, his weakness, and his doubts drive him back to God as the only source of comfort and hope. Where are you running for comfort and hope? There's all kinds of places we can run. And try to escape the pain through entertainment, through distraction, through self-medication. We can try to control the situation in our own strength. And don't get me wrong, that I don't mean that there aren't sometimes practical things that we can do that can help in in difficult circumstances. If you're dealing with a medical issue, you should make use of the means of grace that God has provided in doctors. If you're dealing with depression and mental health issues, you may be really helped by counseling or by medication. The question, though, is what am I looking to as the ultimate source of hope and comfort? What's the first step that my heart takes when fear and anxiety and pain rise up? What's the first place that my mind goes when anxieties press in? Many of you have probably heard of Elizabeth Elliot. You're probably familiar with her. She's a famous missionary, wife of Jim Elliot, who along with several of the team of missionaries were killed uh, reaching out to a tribe in Ecuador. So uh, some people know the more, more of the story. She went on uh, two years later to actually take her three-year-old daughter and live, move in with, that, with the same tribe that killed her husband, Lived there for five years, but with a lot of ongoing challenges and trial. Not least trials and conflicts within the team of missionaries that she was working with. She came back to the United States, married again, and her second husband died. So she was widowed twice. Then married a third time and began to slowly suffer from dementia. And and the the last number of years of her life was a, a slow and painful progression of dementia debilitated her, and ultimately killed her. She's someone who knew what it meant to wait on the Lord. And if you're looking for a practical guide for how to walk through suffering, particularly the kind of long, prolonged trial that I'm talking about, I I would recommend to you this book, Suffering is Never for Nothing. It is the most practical resource that I've found The part that I've personally found most helpful is a section where she talks about offering back to God the pain that we experience in trial. Now, I can't do justice to the full explanation and argument that she builds here, so I'll let you read the book. But in this particular section, she's building off of and expanding off of Psalm 51, verse 17, where it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. She says again and again, I've had people say to me, how do you handle loneliness? And I say, I can't handle loneliness. They ask, well, didn't you spend a lot of time alone in the jungle? I inevitably reply, yes, I did. I spent a good many more years alone than I did married. They return, well, how did you handle it? To which I reply, I didn't. I couldn't. I have to turn it over to someone who can handle it. In other words, my loneliness became my offering. And so, if God doesn't always remove the feeling of loneliness, it is in order that every minute of every day, perhaps, I have something to offer up to him and say, Lord, here it is. I can't handle it. She uses loneliness as a specific example here, and maybe that's relevant for some of you. But the point she's making is that whatever feeling you have that just feels too much to bear, whatever pain you have that's overwhelming and stifling, maybe God has given that to you as a gift that you can offer back to him. It's an invitation to run to him in your pain. And the reason I find this so helpful is because it gives me something to do when I feel like there's nothing else I can do. I feel confused. I'm disoriented. I feel like God is far from me. I feel like I have no idea what the future holds. I feel lonely. I feel isolated. Jesus, you see this. I don't know what to do with it. I can't handle it. Here it is. This is the process of waiting on the Lord. I feel overwhelmed. I bring it to Jesus. I feel afraid. I bring it to Jesus. I'm confused and disoriented. I bring it to Jesus. I'm struggling to believe that God is even real or that he's in control of the situation I bring it to Jesus. I failed to run to Jesus and I ran to something else for comfort. I bring it to Jesus over and over and over and over again. Until the pathway of my heart from pain to Jesus is so deeply worn that it becomes like a reflex. Maybe some of you have had the experience, if you've... uh, had the same commute that you've driven over and over again for a number of years. Maybe you've had the experience that I've had that I, I had when I had this when I used to commute to work, where you arrive at work and realize somewhat unsettlingly that you have no recollection of actually driving there. <laughs> <clears throat> the route is so familiar, so ingrained in your mind that you can almost navigate it unconsciously, and sometimes you do. This is what happens through the, pain, through the process of waiting on the Lord. Through the pain of prolonged trial, we're confronted over and over and over again with a need to run to Jesus, much more so than in times of relative comfort or prosperity. And as the Spirit of God leads us and draws us again and again, the pathways of our heart are deepened and widened. We find ourselves coming to Jesus more often, more quickly, and lingering longer each time that we do. I don't want to miss here the connection to God's word that we see in this passage. Joe mentioned this, and, and Kenny mentioned it in his, passage, in his uh, message on Psalm 119, But when the psalmist is running to God, when he's turning to God in his pain, it's always by means of his word. Verse 81, I hope in your word. Verse 83, I've not forgotten your statutes. Verse 85, they don't live according to your law. But 86, all your commandments are sure. God's Word is a lifeline, particularly in times of extended trial. And I would just offer this very practical recommendation if you're in this kind of season. Find one psalm, Psalm 34, Psalm 91, Psalm 103, and just read it over and over again. Pray through it. Journal it. When you're when when it feels like your circumstances are closing in around you, when you feel drained of energy and resources, that's not the time probably to take on a read through the Bible in a year program. Reading deeply, I mean, reading broadly and shallowly is not going to have the same effect as meditating deeply on a passage of Scripture, and particularly the Psalms. It's what we he- see here in the psalmist, and it's what we have seen in countless saints throughout history who have walked the road before us. If you are in the middle of the pain of waiting right now, trust the process. Keep running to Jesus. Let's look next at the purpose of waiting. I said at the beginning of the message that, and I hope that you've seen it as, as I've moved through, that this Experience of waiting on the Lord is something that we see all over the Bible, and we see it throughout the experience of saints who have come before us. So it raises, I think, an important question. Why does God seem to use this experience so universally in the lives of his people? What is the purpose of waiting on the Lord? Now, I want to be a little bit careful here because I'm not I don't want to presume to know the mind of God. And I also don't want to assume that every trial is the same. It isn't. But when I look across the scripture, when I look at my own life, when I look at the lives of people that I've walked with over many years, there are some patterns and principles that start to emerge. And I believe that growing in maturity as a follower of Jesus means taking all of the circumstances and situations that I face laying them over top of God's word, God's self-revelation of his character and his ways, and trying to discern and learning by the help of the Spirit, what does it mean? How does God relate to me? And how am I called to respond to him? One thing that I see clearly in scriptures is that the human heart craves control. It's it's at the root of the original lie that we believed in Genesis chapter 3. If you eat of the, the tree, you will be like God. You'll be independent. You won't need God anymore. You'll be in control. And so over... And over again, God brings his people into impossible circumstances beyond the limits of their abilities and control so that they are forced to trust in him rather than in themselves. I could spend the next three hours giving you examples, probably more. I'll just give you one. The nation of Israel, after seeing God do incredible miracles to bring them out of the land of Egypt after seeing God's glory descend on Mount Sinai and receiving his law, come to the outskirts of the promised land, the land that God had promised to give them. And in spite of everything that they've seen, they look at themselves and they run away in fear. and so God sends them into the wilderness and now they're waiting on the Lord. Now, you might be you might be saying, well, that was punishment for their disobedience, for their failure to trust God, and that's true. All of the adult generation that failed to trust God and enter into the promised land died in, in the wilderness. But there's actually something far deeper, I think, that God was doing through that experience. And we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 8. When the new generation comes back to the promised land, they're standing on the outskirts ready to enter in. Moses reminds them of what God has done over the last 40 years. He says this in Deuteronomy 8, 2-3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you will keep his commandments or not. Now pay attention. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that so that he might make known, make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What is he saying? Through 40 years of painful waiting, God was teaching his people what it meant to live in daily dependence on him. And the reason, the purpose, was so that they would actually be prepared for the work that God had called them to do. God took them, he taught them what it meant to live in daily dependence on him, so that they would be ready to enter into the promise that he had given them, to enjoy the blessings that he had prepared for them. Without the pain of wandering in the wilderness, the process of learning to depend on God, they would not have been ready to accomplish what God had called them to do. Without the pain of slavery and jail, the process of being humbled and learning to listen to the voice of God, Joseph would not have been ready for the work that God had called him to do in Egypt without the pain of wandering and and waiting in the wilderness, running from Saul, hiding, fearing for his life, and learning to trust God for his daily protection, his daily provision, David would not have been ready to accomplish the work that God had called him to do. Even Jesus, we read in Hebrews 5, 8, learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Don't ask me to explain that now. And we see it here in this passage as well when we come to verse 88. In your steadfast love give me life that so that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. What is the result of the trial that the psalmist has endured that his life would bring glory to God? Friends, God loves us too much to allow us to settle for the cheap pleasures and the shallow accomplishments that this world offers. Even good things, a comfortable life, a successful career, a happy marriage, kids that are healthy and well-behaved and successful, you fill in the blank. Of the things that you desire deeply. They're not bad things. Please don't misunderstand me. We should praise God for the seasons where He provides those things. But let's also remember that He's created us for a lot more. So if you are in a season of waiting on the Lord where He's withholding some good thing that you desire or stripping away some good thing that He's provided, maybe. Maybe it's because he's preparing you for a work that you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Maybe it's because he's preparing you to actually enjoy and experience the true life that he offers that you could not have received any other way. I say that because that's exactly what he's promised to do. Let's look finally at the promise of waiting, and I'll ask the band to return. Verse 82 The psalmist says, my eyes long for your promise. The question this raises for me is, what exactly is the promise that the psalmist is looking for? We know, both from scripture and from experience, that God has not promised to give us comfortable, pain-free lives. That's not a promise any of us should hold on to. Joe mentioned last week that the psalmist who most, is most likely King David, when he talks about God's word, God's law, his precepts, his statutes, he's most likely, I mean, he's, he's primarily referring to the first five books of our Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And this section of Scripture certainly includes some promises, promises for those who would keep the law and obey the law perfectly, promises of judgment on those who don't keep the law, but there is one promise that stands out among the others. It starts in Genesis 3, where God promises that the offspring of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. It continues through Abraham, where God says that through your lineage, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It continues up to David where he receives a promise in Second Samuel 7 that a king would come from him that would establish God's kingdom and his rule forever. And it reverberates through a thousand more years of turmoil, exile, prophetic teaching and, and prophetic warnings Prophetic visions, then silence and waiting. Until in a dirty barn, in a backwoods town in the Middle East, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Friends, the promise that David looked for is a promise that we've seen fulfilled. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. In who? In Jesus. Because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we have a more sure hope than King David could have ever known. When we read passages like Psalm 34.19, Where it says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We don't have to wonder if we're righteous enough for that promise to apply to us. For those who are in Christ, the answer is yes. All the promises of blessing for those who perfectly obey the law, they're ours now and forever all of the promises of God's protection and provision and care for his children, for those who fear him, for those who trust him, they're ours now and forever. None of the curses, the promised judgment that applies to all those who have broken the law, who have violated God's law, which is every one of us, none of those will ever apply to us because Jesus has taken them all. And more than that, we have a Savior who suffered in every way that we have. Who can sympathize with our pain, with our temptations, with our weakness, with our anxieties, with the betrayal that we experience, with the loneliness that we experience. And he invites us to come to him and cast those things on him. He promises never to leave us or forsake us. To constantly intercede for us and to carry out the work that he began until the day that we see him face to face. So if Jesus has brought you into the waiting room, it's because he loves you enough to invite you to walk with him on the Calvary Road. To lay down your life so that you can experience more of his. To abide in him more deeply so that you can bear more fruit. And to lay hold of a glory, an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison that's prepared for all those who would take up their cross and follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are the recipients of this kind of promise. That in your love, in your mercy, in your kindness, you've broken into our sinful hearts, many of us, and opened our eyes to see you for who you are. Father, I pray for those who haven't yet experienced that. I pray that you would open eyes to see the the great Savior that Jesus is. And I pray for all those who are suffering right now, who are struggling to see that and struggling to believe that. I pray that the promises of your word, that the nearness of your presence in Jesus would be a comfort and would be a strength and support in their time of need. In Jesus' name, amen.